Good morning. So before we um, get started looking at our scripture passage for today, um, there are a few people that thought it would be important um, for us to give an update of some stuff that's been happening at the church over the last couple of weeks. As many of you uh, are aware, on August 27th, on Sunday the 27th, uh, as Hurricane Harvey was um, doing so much destruction on the coast uh, and in places east of here, uh, we did lose power throughout campus uh, for a few days, and so we weren't able to gather here and worship on that Sunday, the 27th. And so as things became evident of how devastating this hurricane has been, the elders of our church, the session, uh, made a really bold decision. And the decision that they made was to take and invite you all last Sunday to bring in uh, two offerings. One for September 3rd, as many of you do, and yet one for the Sunday, August 27th, when we didn't gather. And the decision that they made is that Everything that was given for August 27th would not go to the operating budget of this church, but would be given to the mission committee, and that the mission committee would be able to give that money away in the weeks and in the months to come as needs become clear, because this is one of those things that even though the news cycle has moved on to to different stories, the recovery is going to take years. And so for us to be able to look at the long haul of where there are needs and to respond, and I wanted to let you know that your generosity was amazing and that as of this morning, our offering for August 27th was right at $50,000 that came in, none of which will go to the operating budget of this church, all of which will go to the mission committee and to give that money away. And that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing example of leadership and the leadership of our session. But it also is something that can happen, and I want to say this because I did have a couple of people who said, um, oh, I didn't know about that. It was Labor Day. I was away, and I didn't, you know. We could do that kind of thing, give that kind of money to the mission committee rather than our, the budget of our church because of your giving in recent months and years. You can only do that when you're operating from a position of, of strength, right? There's a phrase that I heard from a pastor that I used in a sermon saying that you have to be internally strong in order to be externally focused. If we're struggling to make payroll, we can have all the intentions we want about helping, and those can be good, and we can be praying and doing different things, but you can't do what, what we did. We can do that because of your giving and the strength of, from which we're operating as a church. And so what I want you to hear is, is that whether you gave to that offering, whether you give regularly to the budget of this church, whether you've given to the capital campaign, which is greatly reducing our debt faster than any of us hoped to free up money in our operating budget, it is that giving that allows us to be extravagantly generous. So all of you... We're a part of that. All of you participated. All of you made that possible. And it's exciting to think about as we keep going forward what we might be able to do next. Right? So thank you. Thank you for your generosity uh, that comes out in so many different ways. All right. Well, today we are going to re-engage our series, uh, Formed, 
that we haven't, we haven't looked at this passage of Scripture from Luke 6 in a few weeks. And so, um, just as a reminder, we talked about this series serving as kind of a GPS for our church, a sense of uh, telling us not only where we're going, but how we're going to get there. And in the passage we're about to read from Luke 6, we saw that there are three practices, three behaviors that we see in Jesus that we see throughout the New Testament in his life and in his ministry. But this scripture from Luke 6 captures them, and we are going to be asking ourselves, do these behaviors exist in our lives? Because if we're encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play, if these are the patterns of Jesus' life, they should be the patterns of our life as well. And so we want to identify them in kind of like thinking like a three-legged stool. The stool doesn't stand if one leg is removed. Each of these behaviors and these patterns needs to be present in our life individually and in our life as a community. And those practices, those behaviors are practices of solitude, practices of community, and practices of service. Solitude, community, and service. All of which we need to be looking at in our own life, asking where we are and how do we grow in these, in these ways. The scripture passage that's guiding all of this is from Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 12. And we're going to read the entire thing this morning just to reorient ourselves, okay? Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would lead and guide us forward in your ways so that we might flourish together as families, as individuals, and as your church. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so solitude, community, and ministry. We start with solitude. Why? Because that's where Jesus starts. He starts his day, which is a huge day. He's calling out his apostles. He's naming them, those who will be sent out in his name. There are people who are coming who will be healed. This is a lot going on. But he doesn't start his day with a strategic plan. Where he starts his day is in prayer. And that's where we need to start as well. It says that he goes up onto a mountain and spends the night in prayer before he does anything else. And if you are like me, there's a party that hear, hears that going, I'm glad Jesus can do that, right? It's like, I don't know what that means. I've never spent a night praying on a mountain before. I don't even know what I would do. Of these three practices, solitude, community, and ministry, I know over the last three and a half years and maybe beyond, the practice of solitude is the one we have focused on the least. And we need to grow in that. We need to be challenged in that. That's not okay. But some of the reason is because for me, it's the fuzziest of the three, right? Like when it comes to community, on the extrovert, introvert scale, I'm mildly extroverted, okay? I'm not hugely extroverted like some people, but I'm mildly extroverted. And so I am drawn and find energy in being with people. So the idea of praying on a mountaintop for a night is like not top on my list of like, oh, that's not my bucket list, okay? Like, again, I just, I need to do that. 
Um, and, and also community, I know there's an action step for it, right? I can join a small group. I can take somebody to lunch. I can take somebody to coffee. Like there's, there's things I can do to initiate this behavior and I feel comfortable with it, right? I can, I can develop a strategy for it. Service is the same way. I can give to relief efforts like Hurricane Harvey. I can give and tithe uh, here at the church. I can volunteer with mission partners that we have here in Austin or around the world. There's steps I can do. But solitude, it feels like the one where you're like, okay, I don't really know what that looks like. I get the word, but I don't know what that looks like in practice. I shared this story with the staff and this is sort of a confessional story, okay? And this is a true story, it's a confessional story, but my final year of seminary, my senior year of seminary, where you're studying for ministry, uh, there was a professor at our school that invited to take uh, any seniors who wanted to go on a five-day silent retreat to a monastery. Now, my seminary was in Atlanta, the monastery was just outside of Atlanta, so it was a short drive away but a five-day silent retreat. And my wife heard about it, and she was like, you should totally do that. And I was like, ah. And she was like, you totally should do that. Now, you have to understand Beth. That's Beth's love language, okay, is to go and do something like that. Um, it, it, there was one time my youngest daughter, Hannah, we had to threaten to get her in trouble for something, only one time uh, in her life. But Hannah is wired more like me. She's more extroverted. She loves people. And so the way that you kind of look at Hannah is you say, listen, if you do that again, you're going in a timeout, right? And if you go in a timeout, that means you're going in your room and we're closing the door and nobody's going to come in and talk to you. And you have to sit there with your thoughts and just kind of reflect for a little while in your room. And Beth is standing behind Hannah going, I would like to be put in a timeout, right? <laughs> I would like for someone to put me in a room where no one can come talk to me and shut the door and no one's gonna call my name and I have to sit with my thoughts for a really long time. Would somebody please put me in a timeout, right? So when Beth hears of a five-day silent retreat, there's a piece of her heart that lights up Whereas I feel like fear and trembling at that. But she's like, you should go. And I said, no, I don't think I, she said, no, no, you should go. And because I'm the head of my household and because that's how it worked, I went <laughs> on the retreat. <laughs> now I cheated a little bit, which you should never do on these things, but I did. Do as I say, not as I do. I went on the retreat and this was before the age of smartphones, which I know dates me. So my cell phone was a little flip phone and you weren't supposed to bring it but I did, it's confession time, I admit this, years later, I feel bad for it, I feel freedom, because I've named it to you, my sin, I brought a cell phone. And I did everything I could think of on the retreat, that we had a brief orientation, and they were like, okay, you've got your room, you know, go, enjoy, this is where you will meet for meals, and go. And I did everything you could think of, I prayed, I read the Bible, I prayed, and I read the Bible, and then I freaked out, because I wasn't sure what else to do, and so, I found this storage room in the monastery where they kept sheets and I took my cell phone in there and went in and called Beth so that no one could hear me from the storage room. And I'm like, hey. And she was like, hey, is something wrong? I'm like, no, 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 tell me what's going on in the world. And she was like, no, 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 what? you're on a silent retreat. Why are you calling me? And I said, because I've done everything I can think of. I prayed and I read the Bible. And she goes, it's been an hour and a half. It's been an hour and a half on the retreat. Put the phone down. And I was like, no, 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 don't go away. Please don't go away because I don't know what else to do. She's like, you're going to have to go figure it out. Hung the phone up. 
and it was like I had four days and three quarter left, like not knowing what to do. Now, the retreat actually really did turn into a pretty amazing experience for me, but my point is that's not where I naturally go. And some of you might be the same way. Some of those steps of what does it mean when it says Jesus started everything by going up on a mountain and spending time in prayer could feel a little fuzzy. And so there's two quick questions I want us to ask today together. Question number one is, why is this such a big deal? Why is it essential, this practice of solitude? And why is it essential that we start there? All of us, no matter if we're extrovert or introvert, no matter how old we are, no matter our positions on things, this is a requirement and spiritual maturity for all of us. Why is it essential? And secondly, how do you do it? Why is it essential? And how do you do it? Well, Henry Nouwen writes a lot about why it is essential. And one of the things that Nouwen writes about is that when you realize that Jesus had this, this, these times of intimacy with God, that these times of intimacy with God seemed to bring about a certain sense for him. And that, that sense was a reminder of the voice of God that Jesus is God's beloved. Nouwen says that that's the thing that you see over and over and over again as Jesus prays is a reminder of this voice that declares that he is the beloved of God. That's the first voice you hear when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist as his adult ministry is about to begin. The voice of God the Father that says, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And Nouwen says that in his mind that when Jesus would have these times with God, it was a reminder of that voice because just like you and just like me, Jesus' voice uh, mind was filled with all kinds of voices that told him what he was worth and told him what was important and told him what it meant to be successful and told him how you found a sense of identity and told him how you found a sense of purpose. And it was critical that Jesus begin every day by being reminded of the only true voice that matters that declared that he was God's beloved, that he was unconditionally loved and accepted by God before his day ever began. All of us need that. All of us need that in our lives. The study of psychology has taught us all many different things about human behavior and human life. And one of the things that the study of psychology has taught us is that one of the most damaging things for any person to go through is to spend time in an environment where they do not know that they are beloved. Especially when they're young. Especially as children or as adolescents. If you spend a lot of time not knowing where home is, not knowing that you just have a place where you belong, that that is one of those wounds that can be incredibly difficult to heal from. And that one of the options before people who go through that is not just to go, yeah, I don't really need that in life. But what we do is we we transfer that need to be the beloved onto other places because it is so critical that all of us have that. That is a core part of every one of our DNA to know that somebody outside of us declares us beloved. And it can't just be something we give ourselves. I choose to be beloved because I'm so special. Like our culture today is just enamored with. You are just special. No, it's not something we give ourselves. It's something that God declares for us. You are my beloved. And to hear that voice and to know it, that was where the pain that came from the cross 
we see Jesus express is that he felt a sense of loss of that belovedness, that sense of connection with God, right? You think about all the things Jesus endured on the cross. He endured beating and whipping and nails being driven through him. And yet some of the only words we have that are cried out is Jesus hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that that was maybe the most painful part of the crucifixion was the idea is we're going to sing that the father turns his face away. Does that, did that enter his head that there was no longer that intimacy of hearing that voice that you are the beloved? Something seems interrupted and that is the pain that cries forth because that is what all of us need in our life. This sense of knowing that we are the beloved. And what Nowen writes about and what psychology has taught us is that if we don't find it in God, we will project the need for it in other places. Places that cannot make us truly feel beloved. So one of the things that we can even do is in these rhythms and in these behaviors of Luke 6, we can project them there onto community, onto service. We can let those places make us feel beloved. Take, for example, community. If we don't feel that sense of being beloved from God, we can need it from other people. And it makes us scared of conflict and it turns us into people pleasers and it makes us all these kinds of things because we need certain relationships to stay good and tranquil and happy. Otherwise, it calls something about our being into question. Now, and writes about that if you notice, Jesus was not a people pleaser and he was not a conflict avoider. Now, he didn't go seeking conflict. He didn't go looking for it, but he didn't shy away from it either. Why? Because he didn't get too high when people loved him and shouted out his name, and he didn't get too low when people turned their backs on him because he wasn't looking for people to make him feel beloved. It was declared consistently in times of solitude from God. You are my beloved. That is where value comes from. That is where worth comes from. It doesn't come from the opinions of others. And if we project that onto someone else making us feel special, we will always in the end be let down, whether that's a spouse or a friend or our parents or our children. In the end, it will not give us that sense of unconditional acceptance and love and belovedness that can only consistently come from the voice of God. Or we can project it on service, where we don't have a sense of who we are and what our identity is outside of what we do. That's why for so many people in our culture, when their careers are called into question, it can be such a struggle because that's what we identify. I'm successful in this. I was successful in school. I've got a job. I've got a master's degree. And all of a sudden, I'm a stay-at-home parent watching Talking Triangles with my one-year-old. And there's a piece of you that's going, what happened? Like, I was, I was supposed to do so much more, right? Or it happens for people in retirement, is there certain people that are called to work into their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, because God calls them into a sense of vocation and they have passion. But we all know people who just can't let it go because they're like, I don't know who I am if I do this. Because as I heard someone say recently, retirement is moving from who's who to who's he. And so it's like, so I don't know what that is. And so I need to keep doing this to feel valuable. That's in some ways now and says that's projecting the need to feel worth something and beloved into the things we do. And in the end, it will not give us what we are hungering for. It can only come from the voice of God. Is it essential? Absolutely. And if we don't find it in solitude with God, we will go seeking it at other, other places and always be left disappointed. Is it essential? These practices of solitude, no matter who you are? Yes, it is. Jesus begins his day there.
So number one is it essential? Yes. Number two, how do you do it? I don't mean this to be a cop-out, but in many ways that's what you've got to figure out on your own. Our job as a church is not to teach you a formula. This isn't physics class. Thank goodness, if you saw my grade in physics, it's not physics class. There's no such thing as the three-step process for here's how you pray to God in successful ways, right? That's an infomercial, right? Do these three things, and you too will experience intimacy. That's my best infomercial voice, right? Like, you will have, and get a free set of steak knives, right? Like, do this. Like, we, we want things like a formula. There's a power in Luke 6, that it, what it says and what the Scripture doesn't say. It says he went up onto a mountain and spent the night in prayer, but it doesn't say how he prayed. And I think that is incredibly intentional. Because I think Jesus understood human nature that if you and I saw these are the three ways that he prayed up on top of the mountain that night, we would put in a rule book and become legalistic about it and hammer away that this is the only way that it's supposed to be done. And it would defeat the entire purpose of a relationship with God. So our job as a church is not to teach you formulas. But it's to say if this is an essential part of life and we haven't spent as much time in this as we probably should have, then we need to foster different ways of helping you experiment and figure out how do I connect with the voice of God? So we're doing things like the examine that you did earlier. You can do that on your own. You can do this in ways like we're going to do a half-day silent retreat, not a five-day, a half-day silent retreat the first week in December to go on, to try it out. There's different spiritual practices of prayer. It's way you can pray. You can do it right here. We're counting on the fact that you've had moments of solitude and connection with God here in this service, in the music and everything. You don't have to be by yourself. But having that point where you're standing before God. What did Jesus do on that mountain? My guess is when we read that verse, there were a lot of you that had an image in your head. Oh, I bet he did this. I bet he spent... 10 hours on his knees in silent prayer. Maybe, maybe he spent the whole night walking and climbing and hiking the mountain because being active is what he needed to do and he prayed and he sang while he did. Maybe he did interpretive dance on top of the mountain. The point is we don't know. But this is about your relationship with God. And the fact is, the reason it's not formulaic is all relationships work this way. Every relationship that's life-giving works this way. Quick example. There's certain statements we can make about marriage that I believe are true. And these are true. This is true of friendship. This is true of any relationship. I'm just using marriage as one example. But to have a marriage that over the long haul grows deep and intimate and joyful, you have to have intentional shared experiences together. You have to find ways where you're listening to each other, where you take time out to be together, where you communicate well, where you forgive each other and reconcile, where you pray with each other. And if you don't do that, and wait, not waiting for one or two mountaintop experiences per year, but if you don't find weekly, daily patterns of communicating and listening and reconciling and talking and praying for each other, then over time you become kind of just business partners, right? Dividing up responsibilities around the house. You've got to have that. Right? That is, I believe, a truthful statement about a marriage. 
But what that point of connection and what those things look like for one couple is gonna be totally different from another couple, right? Some of you might say, man, if I could do anything for us to connect, I would turn off my cell phones and we would go for a walk around Town Lake and we would just talk for a few hours and stop for a cup of coffee and listen and hear each other and communicate and it would be great. Other couples go to monster truck rallies, right? And you connect there on the ride and everything else. Some of you would say, man, the way we connect is like every once a month we go and play nine holes of golf together. I know a couple that does that. Every month they go play nine, they walk nine holes, they play together. For many of you, going and walking and playing nine holes of golf as a couple would be a hugely destructive experience on several different levels, right? This is how relationships work. There are universal true statements that we make, but the particulars of how a relationship is worked out has to be figured out in the context of each unique relationship. That's all we're saying about this thing with God. We are saying this time of hearing God's voice is Truly critical for every single person, but you have to find your way of being in relationship with God. Some of you are like Beth. You're going, please put me in a timeout. Put me in a room for an hour. Nobody can talk to me. An hour of silent prayer. That is like music to my ears. Others of you like me have never prayed that way in your life. And that's okay. My prayer life has to be much more active. I go on walks, I go on hikes, I take my dog with me. It's like being outside, it's being by myself, but I experience the presence of God. Some people do that through the examine that we got to do earlier. Some people do it in different ways through music. The point is you finding different ways of doing it yourself and going there again and again and again so that you are not listening to all the voices in life that tell you where you find meaning and worth and importance, but that you, like Jesus, are regularly stopping and hearing the one voice that counts the voice of your creator that looks at every single one of us here today and declares in absolute clear terms, you are my beloved. And in you, I am pleased. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask this day that your voice would become more and more clear to us that declares our worth and our value, not because we've earned it, but because of your grace. Meet us this day. Meet us even now. Meet us this week that we might be filled to overflowing. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing one last song together as we worship. Yeah.